0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is the tech writer Tom Chatfield, whose new book is Wise Animals, How Technology Has Made Us What We Are. Tom, welcome. Your book, you start, which just seems to me irresistible, by defining your terms by defining technology in a way you borrow from Douglas Adams. <laughs> you tell us a bit about how you're defining technology here and what Adam saw that the rest of us
1: didn't? Yeah, thanks very much, Sam. So, yeah, I mean, I'm a lifelong geek, so I had to get that in. And he wrote a delightful essay, you know, 20, 25-odd years ago about w- why we should all stop worrying and learn to love the internet. And he defined technology in the manner of Brian Ferrin, a computer scientist, as the stuff that doesn't work yet. So he was talking about the fact that chairs, once upon a time, they were technologies. We didn't quite know how to make them. The legs didn't work. We fell off occasionally. But gradually, as we worked out what a chair was and how it should be made, it stopped being thought of as a technology and just became part of the fabric of the world. So technology is the shiny, strange new stuff that we embrace when we're young, worry about terribly as soon as we get into about our 30s. And then gradually, maybe admit wasn't that bad after all. As uh, as we head towards the grave, <laughs> yes, we, we we kind of die happy. Good. Well, that's encouraging.
0: Um, that Douglas Adams quote implies that we kind of get technology wrong, and your book certainly seems to have as its theme that a lot of our anxieties about technology and a lot of the the questions that. Are raised about technology a phrase wrong because we've got tech wrong in fact you've structured it haven't you almost every chapter is called the delusion of something so we've got you, you're pretty kind of systematic about getting tech wrong what are the, what are the fundamental things that we're misunderstanding about it
1: so the reason i I love that Adams observation so much is he was an incredibly astute observer of human nature and he was observing that once stuff sinks beneath the surface of our attention. You know, once something stops being new or or different, we just treat it as inevitable, as part of the fabric of the world, as natural in the same way that trees or water are natural. So he was completely right about human nature. But of course, the point that goes with this is that the human-made world is neither natural nor inevitable. And I think when it comes to debating technology, the foundational thing I think we, we need to do and I believe very strongly it is very important in the present, is to realise that although we didn't choose it in the sense we can't choose the world we have been born into, it is stuff we made, that we maintain, that we control. And, and collectively, over time, it only exists because of our species and we only exist because of it. So we cannot be deterministic about technology. And determinism is a perhaps a fancy word for a state of mind in which you assume that the path of history, the way the future is going, is more or less determined by technologies. That you know, once you invent computers, certain behaviors and social outcomes just follow from these automatically. And you hear it all the time today. You can't uninvent AI, you can't resist progress, you're a Luddite, you're foolish if you complain that, for example, that you know, creative industries are being hollowed out by AI, or that uh, children are doing wonderful things, but also being made anxious. And you know, to complain about this is to be a luddite. So that was my starting point to talk about what it means to defamiliarize ourselves, to look beneath the surface. And you're right that I, I talk about delusions about false consciousness because I think philosophy in general, for me, you know, I kind of flip between literature and philosophy. I'm hopelessly interdisciplinary. But it's, it's not even so much about arguments, it's about noticing. You know, it has a commonality with, with literature and art. It's about noticing, paying attention. And so you hear, for example, people saying, you know, tools are neutral. It's just how we use them. AI is just a tool, right? Use it well, use it badly. That's completely wrong. Every tool has biases and assumptions baked into it, for better and for worse. If I want to kill you, probably a gun is more effective than a book. And if I want to educate my children and improve their lives, then probably filling their room with books is better than filling their room with guns. <laughs> uh, it doesn't funny, mean. T- I've <laughs>
0: been having some arguments with my fourteen-year-olds <laughs> about revising <some> exams. <laughs> Leads me to a different conclusion. But
1: anyway, carry on. Sorry. So we could do both. So it's partly trying to suggest to people that there are a lot of common narratives out there through which you know sort of technology is understood in this you know sort of everyday sense, and tech companies and governments and us, you know our debates around this incredibly important and fascinating topic are shaped by these unseen narratives. And I'm trying, I hope, you know, sort of almost playfully at times, to suggest other ways of seeing two people based on essentially my just bottomless fascination with, with what happens when you try to lift up the hood of our relationships with technology, how we in the world came to be this way.
0: Well, one what, what of the things you do, I think, very well in the beginning, which sort of frames the argument that you unfurl subsequently is to say, okay, technology isn't just the stuff we're noticing consciously as technology, but that it has a very long history and that its history is not, again, what we think it is according to the sort of set narratives, one of which is to do with the idea that something is sort of invented, you know, from scratch, if you like, and that these are the great inflection points that the the sort of solitary genius or brilliant new company invents something. But it also gives us, doesn't it, a kind of longer sense of quite how intertwined we are with technology rather than seeing it as something that's sort of out there and separate from
1: us. Yeah, absolutely right. I call that the it and us delusion. um, And I'll take suggestions for better names for that, uh, because I'm not sure it's one of my best coinages. But as you say, it's this idea that the technology is just out there in the world and we we pick it up and we put it down and and someone brilliant invents it and that changes the world. It's a very tempting narrative formulation because it it makes history tractable. But actually, almost a kind of a eureka moment for me in my writing and, and work and research around what does it mean to understand technology more richly, to use it well, was going right, right back. You know, a lot of new work around the the Paleolithic period, the ancient past, and, and just the very basic fact that, for example, you know, Stones and Fire, we think of a film like 2001, where our kind of ape ancestors suddenly grab a bone and toss it in the air and whoop and shriek, and there's this eureka moment. But actually... There's these hundreds of thousands of years during which all these iterations and experiments are taking place and in which very gradually, remarkably, these innovations, these tiny incremental improvements start to be passed on. Tools are made with other tools. And so something like fire and flames, it's not the kind of eureka moment. It's the gradual domestication of energy that allows our species to become less hairy because we can make artificial warmth that allows us to get more nutrients from food and consume more different kinds of food that allows us to create other kinds of tools by using heat treatment to make glues and things like that that allows us to wander outside woodlands and and be in savannas All, all these amazing things and what we see here is still going on today it's still this kind of evolving accumulation rather than these sudden moments. Gutenberg is a great innovator, but the really remarkable thing is the way he brings together thousands of pre-existing ideas and innovations in a novel way. And I think once we start to see technology as a kind of evolutionary companion evolving alongside us, we get closer to something important, which is the sort of richness and complexity of what's actually going on, rather than the memorable stories that help us kind of make it feel comprehensible and exciting well that point you make about the technology being both evolutionary and
0: essentially a kind of combinatorial system that technologies are made of prior technologies in new new combinations and that they're tested that way does give on to an aspect of your book that seems to me to at least go along with a, a sense of the world which does accord somewhat with some of the people you disagree with which is you say just from the mathematical insights. The more things you have to combine, the faster they'll combine. You know that things are speeding up in a really dramatic way. And you say you use phrases like "you know." You say we are at the sharp point of history. You say we're standing on a threshold. This is a, you don't in your book completely deny that we are in a pretty unique place with the development of technology and that a lot. I'm wondering, do you go along, for instance, with Toby Ord's idea? that we are at this pinch point where the next 100 years or so are going to be very hairy, and if we can avoid wiping ourselves out as a species, we're basically made for the rest of history, but he doesn't
1: give us very good odds. Yeah, so, I mean, Toby's book, the, The Precipice, absolutely argues that at the moment, because of the accelerating impacts of technology on the planet, the amount of, you know, energy that's been unleashed by the burning of fossil fuels, that effectively the power of our technologies to wreak change and to have their own momentum has completely outpaced our ability to comprehend and control them. In a way, I don't disagree with, with aspects of the diagnosis. I think that's a lot of the present has to be understood as unique and unprecedented in these ways. But I disagree with the cure, because for me, the lesson to take from this is not that we don't have control. And I think it's also not that we ought to focus on disastrous near and far future scenarios as the fundamental guiding light. For me, I'm really interested in, well, what kind of control do we have? As a very simple example, take this global pandemic that we had. Now, it was appalling, amazing, astounding, a vast natural experiment in what people do in a situation of crisis. But it was also a rather remarkable example of the fact that that very broadly, and despite the enormous losses and destruction and so on, people effected radical change very, very fast. You know, entirely new vaccination techniques were rolled out successfully to hundreds of millions of people. Broadly speaking, governments didn't fall. Riots didn't break out. You know, in certain parts of the world, very, very oppressive things happened. There's all kinds of stuff one could say, but actually people's capacity to change together to face certain facts and act, vastly outstripped doomy prognostications. Our collective agency was far greater than I think we're often given credit for. And, and the reason I'm using that example is that when I look at some, some really great and interesting books by people like Toby Orr, by people like uh, William McCaskill, the great philosopher Derek Parfit, these kind of long-termist views, the diagnosis seems to me to be urgent and important. But then the idea that we focus on these kind of hyper dangerous scenarios and incredibly efficacious actions by very rich people, vast tech companies and so on, seems to me to get the solution the wrong way round, that we need to focus on the kind of local social relations and how people come together and collectively make change and renegotiate their situations, the sort of nitty gritty of it. So I, I'm a virtue ethicist, I guess. I ultimately, where I try to locate hope, is in the kind of particular and the human and the local. And I'm very suspicious of the reasoning backwards from the apocalyptic future scenario, because I think it makes our reasoning fragile. It smuggles these huge, unjustified assumptions into present reasoning, so it makes us unpersuasive. You know, so I, in a weird way, I almost propose this kind of incremental modest approach to these vast problems because I think leaping to vast solutions is paradoxically one of the most dangerous things we can do.
0: Well, that is one of the,
1: it's a sort of theme that that
0: comes and goes in your book, but it's absolutely there in this you know, millenarian kind of thinking we've described, which is religion and the way in which the narratives we build around technology do seem to be kind of religious in character, in terms of their teleologies, in terms of their ideas as saviour. There's a lovely quote you used from, I think, I think it's Popper, which I hadn't heard before, which he called promissory materialism. which is a lovely paradoxical idea. Can you talk a bit about how that all fits in? I mean, has our understanding of technology essentially hijacked the narratives we've
1: previously used for religion? Absolutely. So we know we have a yearning towards a vaster identification towards the transcendent. And I think a lot of the people who portray themselves as absolutely rational materialists, ironically enough, invest technology and progress with a capital P with precisely this kind of millenarian faith, this idea of what Alfred North Whitehead called a kind of a progress theology, humanity is God in the making. That the divine is is a kind of endpoint for our species. The myth of the singularity, the idea that our machines will, at a certain tipping point, become self-improving, self-remaking, and sort of take us beyond the civilizational event horizon, is literally directly from science fiction, and yet it is literally believed as an imminent truth by very influential people in the West Coast and elsewhere. So transhumanism, the idea that as you say, technology is not only a matter of invention and ingenuity, but also of faith, self-perfection, salvation, and transcendence. This, for me, is an incredibly important present theme, because yet again, I think it draws the wrong conclusion from the right observations. We are reinventing ourselves with incredible rapidity and incredible consequence. But to some degree, we have always been in the process of reinventing ourselves. And this reinvention, this self-augmentation, will never ever deliver us from frailty. It will never deliver us from our connectedness to each other and to the other essential systems of life support on this planet. And the very dangerous idea that because at some future point technology will dissolve all our problems and dilemmas, the machines will save us, they'll break history, this is very dangerous because it then means that in the present day... You get to say what a lot of technologists of a certain uh, mindset do, which is nothing really matters other than the tech I'm working on, because in the end it will right all wrongs. Nothing really matters. Very rich people just need to support this. Governments just need to get out of the way and do that. Or conversely and apocalyptically, we have to have an absolute moratorium on this technology because it is so dangerous it will end the world. And of course, AI firms have in a way used doomerism as a kind of marketing you know, this stuff is so powerful. It's so powerful and dangerous. Everyone just has to use it all the time as a business. This is so powerful. This is so amazing. It's so dangerous. I'm so worried about it. Of course, the implicit message is, therefore, hey, guys, take out a subscription. And, and all of this, I think, takes us further away from this, if you like, rather boring, but extraordinarily important, just attentiveness to what is actually going on. It's that great Gibson quote, the future's here, it's unevenly distributed, that means that if we want to look at the future, we have to look at the present with enormous care and without being kind of just uh, shoehorned into these little boxes that are too narrow and constrained for reality, where it's all about salvation, transcendence, doom, or all this sort of millenarian stuff rather than the uncomfortable truth, that there's not that much we control and nothing we control perfectly, but nevertheless we must try.
0: Well, something that... I mean, you know, you just mentioned AI, and that seems a very good example because AI, like it or not, at the moment, seems to be the number one topic of conversation, both in terms of, you know, our salvation from having to draw our own pictures or whatever it is, or our imminent, you know, extinction as Skynet takes over and kills us all. I mean, where do you stand on AI as a technology and its distinctiveness or otherwise from? what we call human forms of intelligence, because there seems to be quite a divide, isn't there, between people who say, this is just basically really extremely sophisticated autocorrect uh, that steals a lot of copyright material, and people who say, this could sort of, if it's making something human-like, it could essentially render us
1: sort of redundant. I'm very struck by the philosopher and psychologist Alison Gopnik's account of large language models and that sort of subset of AI, as social technologies as something more like libraries like a kind of animated library there's vast amounts of intelligence locked up in language in human works and words and i think one of the things that are kind of all writers know to some degree but it's perhaps very uncomfortable to have made explicit is that you know our words and our culture they they speak through us so i begin with what you might call the extended mind hypothesis david chalmers and andy clark coined this phrase but it makes the point which i think is a true one that our minds and our thinking don't just take place inside our bodies physically inside our inside our physical brains that a tremendous amount of our intelligence as a species is sociable and technological i'm talking to you now the language i learned from other people The tools I'm using, I'm surrounded by the works of countless generations, you know, the screen, the desk, the lovely chair I'm sitting on. And these make me smarter. The first time one of our ancestors used their fingers to count how many, you know, wildebeest were running past or to keep track of who owed who what by making a scrawl on a piece of rock. So I see AI as a radical intensification of something that has immemorially been true that our minds are extended into the built environment, into the human-made world, into language. And so the intelligence that these entities possess, which is very real, is a mindless intelligence. They don't have minds. And it's a mindless intelligence based upon the enormous amounts of latent, implicit understanding encoded into human words and works. Once we realise that this kind of mindless intelligence is incredibly powerful, is in many ways more sophisticated than our own, but it lacks certain features of a mind, it lacks a unitary self-perception, purpose, consciousness, drives, ambitions, it has no worldview, then we can see it as something alien and remarkable, but that we cannot afford to anthropomorphise. And this is a delusion, I think, that cuts both ways. Anthropomorphism, of course, is to attribute human-like attributes to entities Uh, that don't have these, you know, my car is angry with me, my computer hates me, my printer is evil, or this AI wants to take over the world. But it cuts both ways. It's also to see ourselves, by analogy to machines, I'm processing, I'm buffering, I need to reboot. We're nothing like our creations. They are, to some degree, parasitic upon our works. They may vastly exceed our capabilities in certain areas, but we just need to get past this kind of anxious analogy as fast as possible. And I think then there's this wonderful challenge. We have this world where we're surrounded by, you know, sort of autonomous and quasi-autonomous informational agents. So what do we want them to do and why? The questions of purpose and value and framing and priority will remain in the human domain, but the questions of action and pattern recognition and perception will increasingly be delegated. So we'd better be very, very, very sure that we delegate wisely. Yes. Do you agree with Nick Bostrom that there is a, a potential control problem? I think Nick's absolutely right that there's a huge control problem because if you have a very, very powerful agent, an agent being, you know, whether this agent is a, is a mechanical digger or a factory controlled by an AI or whatever, if you give it a task, then absolutely it will potentially relentlessly pursue that task and any unintended consequences you know, if you find out about those too late, then you're in lots of trouble. So and, and his famous example is, you know, I, I want to make lots of paper clips, I get my super AI to, to make paper it's clips. It's really old tech thing,
0: the paper clip, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean who <laughs> wants to why do, why do we want <laughs> paper
1: clips? Why do we want paper clips? And so the entire world, but we get in the way of paper clips, more paper clips is better. So the entire world becomes a giant paperclip factory and the entire universe is turned into some kind of computational goo that makes paper clips. It's a lovely illustration of the need for control. But I think in a way, again, I come back to boring answers like governance. I don't think we need a a science fiction intervention to solve our science fiction scenario. When you look at autonomous cars and things like that, I looked at the National Transportation Safety Board in the US, regulation of tech, quality assurance, involvement of citizens and democratic oversight, scrutiny. Uh, the boring old stuff is incredibly important. And that's why I think there's a bait and switch going on. If I tell you a science fiction story, super intelligent machine will turn the world into a giant paperclip. Okay, Tom, I'm really scared now. What should we do? Well, what you need to do is give me a trillion dollars to fund my institute of don't make super intelligent paperclips. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I'm going to come up with the AI that will regulate the AI. It's the only way. Fight tech with you. uh, Completely the reverse. It's like you say to AI companies, guys... Scrutiny needed. Transparency needed. Regulation needed. Slow down a bit. You need to show us you're working. You need to be accountable. And by the way, if your bot does something stupid, you're on the hook for it legally and financially. But this stuff is not sexy. And this stuff doesn't align with the whole vision that a lot of tech companies promote, which is, you know, we're super powerful. This stuff is super dangerous. We're super worried. So by the way, you should give us lots of money and allow us to regulate ourselves.
0: Yes, that's where uh, one of the other points that your book touches on quite a lot is politics. I mean, you're not very explicit about the politics of all this, but politics seems to me to come everywhere through or to suffuse the, the questions that you're asking. Because, for instance, you say transparency, a lot of people would say in the commercial worlds in which these things operate, well, there's obviously commercial confidentiality. We can't show you our algorithms. We can't show you our you know, what, <laughs> how our paperclip-making bot works. And a lot of the things you're discussing when you talk about the collective and the idea that, you know, because there's definitely a, a particular slant in a lot of sort of West Coast tech, which is towards a particular type of, you know, a bit beyond Milton Friedman in the direction of Ayn Rand-style libertarian individualism. I mean, do you think that this is something we can get the world on board with or is is this a political battleground in which you're representing the sort of social democratic damn commie end of it
1: so i mean one of the reasons i haven't written at great length by politics it's not my area of deep expertise and I, and I wouldn't want to sort of pretend to have an expertise i don't but this is an inherently political topic yes and and, and a very basic point i think which people like the um, the author Kate Crawford have made very eloquently, is that when we talk about artificial intelligence again, we shouldn't be sucked into imagining, you know, kind of little magical boxes floating in magical clouds in nowhere space. We're talking about tech companies in particular places with particular physical infrastructure collecting data about people and stuff subject to particular economic and commercial incentives and so on and so on. It's embodied, it's material, it's part of the world, it needs to be seen in that particular instance, not, not in the abstract. So in a weird way, I've written you know, a kind of a long philosophical book which tries to insist upon particularity. At the moment, the EU AI Act is a very ambitious attempt to say to technology companies, if you want to do business in this territory, certain minimum standards of transparency and accountability will need to be enforced. There are certain areas we're not going to let you go because we consider them to be invasive or corrosive of of privacy or dangerous. Other approaches are being trialled in China and America. So actually, there is a huge global opportunity here. And I do think that the libertarian stance is not the one that will win. Now, that could be bad as well. You know, we talk about China. And of course, I mentioned the pandemic earlier. You know, we have a state whose methods are, to some degree, you know, totalitarian, where individual freedom and agency is simply not a priority. But, but again, I think because it's inherently political, of course, political entities and states will be deeply, deeply interested in this. AI is potentially an enormously powerful tool for surveillance and oppression. It's the dictator's best friend. So with interest and an open mind, and as I say, a lack of intricate expertise, I'm watching what the EU and others do and the consequence of it with very close interest. And I think what is clear, having spent some time in Brussels and speaking at the European Parliament and elsewhere, is that for all the potential flaws of the legislation, there's a great sense in which social media is seen as a missed opportunity, that a laissez-faire attitude there has done damage to democracy, to public life. There's many goods of social media as well, but that a laissez-faire attitude there has not served people or economies or countries or the state of the world and so when it comes to a technology as powerful but also still as up for grabs as machine learning as pattern recognition on this vast scale in a way it's always political right you just have to try and be as explicit as possible about what the politics of the particular values you're embedding in your systems are. Do you feel anxious at all or or i'm wondering how much
0: you you factor into your thinking on this that question probably you know the old sort of cliche of where is the internet in that when you say if you want to do business here it's not as simple as it was when you're building rivets and there is an opportunity given the interconnectedness of everything to kind of if you like get into dutch auctions legislatively between different countries for tech companies to kind of arbitrage differences in legislative regimes so they can kind of pipe their stuff in from somewhere else. And the enforcement, you know, we've got this sort of Westphalian model of state sovereignty that worked very well a couple of centuries ago, that's a lot
1: harder to apply to tech. Is that a fair criticism? Well, I I would say there's a sort of is and isn't. To some degree, in a funny sense, I think this has been overstated, so if we think about, for example, China or Iran or Russia, it's not at all the case that if you're a citizen there, you can just use any service you like, willy-nilly offered by anybody, and you can ignore your your government's attitude. Quite quite the reverse. You're in a great deal of trouble if you try to do or say almost anything. The, the surveillance capabilities of the state, its ability to lock to its geographical or, or indeed kind of notional or conceptual borders is empowered by technology. But there absolutely is a sense in which capital and to some degree Labour, can go where they want, you know. And, and for the purposes of tax and economics, we have, you know, countries like Ireland, we have jurisdictions where, which make themselves hospitable to tech. So I think there's got to be sticks and carrots. And I, and I know that European legislators are very aware that it's not just saying, to do business here, you need to do this, you know, therefore all the innovation is going to happen elsewhere, and, and that's bad luck. The idea, I think, is that a standards regime which is ethical, which is clear, which is fair to citizens and consumers, can be attractive, just like the GDPR legislation has to some degree provided a kind of global model for a privacy respecting or more privacy respectful attitude towards data and custodianship. But yes, there have to be sticks and carrots. I think it's something paradoxical about digital infrastructure that on the one hand, you know, it can demolish geography, as you say, and um, To some degree, great corporations can have a lot more power than nation states. But on the other hand, and this is often underestimated in the West, where, if you like, government is less in our faces, governments and armies and police can get their axes, knock down your doors, chop your cables, lock you up, restrict what you see. The power they have is far, far, far beyond, far more deeply, urgently real than anything any tech company wields.
0: Yes, so there's a choice between the two, you know, you, it's a bit of a Hobson's choice, isn't it? You go, well, actually, you can regulate the internet, you just have to be China or Russia.
1: Well, quite. And so the great challenge, which we know, and I have no idea how it would play out, is how, if you like, an attempt at a liberal regulatory regime, which protects certain values and rights of citizens, which guarantees certain ideas around privacy and, um, you know, the things that we won't try to find out about you, the ways we won't try to manipulate you, how well that works... Will it be a global model or not? And it's also worth remembering the philosopher's point that painting other countries with broad brushstrokes is very dangerous. You know, looking in, in any closeness at kind of China's work around AI, very sophisticated. I'm not an expert on Confucianism or Taoist ethics, but there are ancient and extremely detailed ethical systems, um, you know, predicated on ideas of, of harmony, predicated upon ideas of of belonging and identity and responsibility that one can't simply just dismiss with a hand wave. So I think to be kind of myopic is very dangerous, not least because, you know, a lot of the stuff I I have in my book, I guess, is fairly liberal and Western. But I've tried to remain aware that there are other ethical systems and priorities out there. And if we're going to have any kind of transnational agreements, they're going to involve people understanding one another's positions with respect and finding some kind of common ground. And of course, to go to the point you made earlier about the challenges that we have, although things like environmental degradation and global heating and so on affect different parts of the world differently, they are by their very nature a problem for all of us, for all of our children. And similarly, the consequence of these ultimately have no interest in national borders. These are arbitrary things. And, um, but again, I'm much more interested in the detail. I don't have the solutions. I don't pretend to have the solutions. And I think a lot of very smart techie people who know a lot about that and nothing about politics should not pretend to have the solutions either and certainly shouldn't ask to be given loads of money or left to get on with saving the world because they are not going to. <laughs> now, you mentioned social media, which,
0: you know, as you say, it was a missed opportunity. It's at least partly responsible for some of the general havoc we've seen in our politics and our national life. Do you go along with the the idea, I mean, what, you know, there is that cliche that we are, you know, we've got Stone age brains and, you know, Enlightenment laws and space-age technology. There's a lot of concern, I think, around all sorts of areas of life. Social media is a very obvious one, but a lot of the transformation of culture, acceleration of culture, to do with basically... We've figured out how to game our dopamine reward loops too tightly that our silly old brains are no longer capable of coping with the incentive structures that the evolution of this tech puts in place. And, you know, we just can't stop scrolling on TikTok. I mean,
1: is there a way around that, do you think? What's Yeah, so I'm deeply, deeply suspicious of these narratives because I think they presume the conclusion and they denigrate our agency. What is undoubtedly true is that individually and collectively, we just have an incredible flexibility and incredible sensitivity to our environments, to our social environment, to our built environment, to our technological environment. Under certain conditions, as history tells us again and again, smart people, good people, most people can behave with terrible stupidity and viciousness and foolishness. And under other conditions history tells us again and again, people can behave with astonishing decency, goodness, brilliance, selflessness and insight. So the question for me is, it's not some revelation that under certain conditions, people are awful. You know, you have to be utterly historically illiterate to think that this is news. But this kind of deterministic dopamine stuff is laughable as an account of human psychology and society. It predicts nothing. It just sort of makes a sad noise about the fact that lots of people spend lots of time on TikTok. I'm much, much more interested in what it means to design systems and behaviours and and regulations that get the best out of us, Uh, rather than kind of deploring particular behaviours. I think the, the moment you sort of begin with the sort of premise, especially if it's a hidden premise, that people are basically foolish and silly, then really you've conceded the point that you need to be advocating well, for. Is that necessarily the premise or is the premise more something to do with, if you like, addiction psychology? Yes. Yeah, so the valid point seems to me that what we call addiction is something that, to a greater or lesser degree can claim almost anyone, even even those people who don't think of themselves as that. And certainly also that what are sometimes called dark patterns in machines, that there's tremendous risk. So in in that sense, reverse engineering our kind of evolutionary vulnerabilities, yes, is a huge risk, a huge source of exploitation, something to worry about greatly. So yes, I almost take that as a fact. But the reason I say I talk about a false premise is the sort of hidden assumption that this then is a, there's a full stop after this, right? That people are like this, and then perhaps the only way to protect them is either to ban this or to throw up our hands and say, uh, I, I despair, and so on. It takes a great deal of work to get people stuck in these cognitive ruts. And also, as we see in the research around this, a very fine book by Natasha Doe Shul, for example, about industries of addiction and gambling, there's always something else going on. You talk to addicts, you talk to, to people who suffer from these behaviours, and it is best understood in the context of the life. And help and progress, again, come not just from cold turkey taking away the thing, but from understanding holistically, if you like, what it would mean for them to find other purposes and do other things. So for me, then, I desperately want to focus upon the elevation, the things that can elevate our cognition. And actually, we look at schools and things like that, and we see, you know, lots of worry about tech. Understandably, I have children, I'm terrified. But what we don't, I think, see enough of, because the evidence is very critical there, is the really, really good, robust, strong, deep evidence around the importance of exercise, decent diet, socialisation, varied play, exposure to a variety of enriching and interesting materials from video games to art, things like that. Now, I don't want to be in, you know, happy land where we've got all the money and time in the world and everyone can just run around playing, but it is not a mystery what human beings need to thrive, Right? Decent relationships with one another, loving, mutual, respectful relationships, good food, rest, freedom from want and fear, a purpose in life above and beyond material sufficiency. Now, how, how a society give these to people and how we support them is, uh, is a very, very hard question. But the answers don't lie in the realm of tech and pinning it all on tech. So the idea that social media has caused social harms is a little dangerous for me because it gives too much credit to the tech it kind of decouples it from the social circumstances. The idea that people in desperate situations who are alienated, who are disillusioned, find each other on social media, amplify and spread hate, detach themselves from reality, are isolated from structures of mutual care. Yes, absolutely. The political malaise that produces Trumps is not a malaise of technology, but technology allows people to find each other, amplify their messages and and build kind of parallel realities. But we're not going to solve this stuff by wringing our hands over dopamine. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's eloquently put. You say just before we move on from that, there's a line in your book where you say, "I'm, I'm sorry if I misparaphrase, but you say that fake news. You say people are worried about fake news, and that there are short-term incentives whereby, you know, there are perverse economic incentives and there's structural incentives sometimes in the tech to propagate untruth. But you say, you know, look, they're less resilient than human truth seeking in the end, these incentives, and that the drive for human truth-seeking works on the evolutionary scale, which is a much longer term thing, and it will win out. Now that made me sort of raise an eyebrow and think, well, you've also made the case in your book that you know the sea creates, designs ships by sinking lots of them. It seemed rather a teleological position for you to take that you know actually we've got a deep sense of truth-seeking, it'll all be all
1: right. So truth and truth-seeking. So what I was trying to do there was be a dichotomy. One or the other wins. Either reality wins or your view of reality catches up with reality and allows you to survive. Uh, but, but, but it's absolutely a kind of a basic fact about evolution. A virus doesn't care what you think of it. It doesn't care what stories you, you tell. A virus will kill you. If the global temperature is rising and rising and rising and rising, it doesn't care what stories we tell. So the question I I don't at all think will all be all right, actually, although I do have a much more faith in humanity uh, than a lot of people. Uh, But I do think that it's an either or situation. Either at some point you find a way to face up to certain facts and truths or those facts come and get you. So it's not really an optimistic position, but it does make the point for me that a conspiracy theory is a very, very effortful thing to maintain. Now, of course, technology and and, and sociodynamics allow us to do that. And also, and I think this is an important point, that what we call conspiracy theories, when they do endure and endure and endure, then they do so because in certain ways they have a a vigour and evolutionary fitness because they, they solve certain problems for people and they bring certain benefits. Now, those benefits mainly accrue to them, if you sort of mean, if you look at them in a kind of mimetic sense, you know, a conspiracy theory that says only believe what we say, have lots of children, teach them this and kill everybody else, is going to have a very high level of fitness in terms of protecting itself from reproducing. It could potentially, if you like, colonise the minds of the majority of the human race and we might survive for for millions of years as a sort of society of fundamentalists who are wildly intolerant of any other point of view. Good things... Starship troopers. Quite, quite. Good things in a quote-unquote ethical sense don't survive because they're good. The the rule of survival is survival. So in, in that sense... There's a terrifying amorality to the kind of evolutionary processes playing out around us. But things that don't serve or don't accommodate reality will fail. And this is one of the great strengths, of course, of the scientific method or the cluster of methods we call science, that they seek incrementally to bring us a little closer to actuality, to predict a little more wisely. And it's very notable that, you know, the world's fundamentalists, by and large, are not Luddites in the in perhaps the misleading sense of anti-tech. They go hand in hand because the, the tools of reshaping reality are exactly the ones that those with um, very hardline views about reality want. So I apologise if I didn't perhaps sound as miserable as I ought to have done. But for me, the great gift of evolutionary theory it is that it allows us to cut through things with this almost this sort of intellectual knife and say, well, look, if it's still around, if it's been around for thousands of years, it serves certain purposes, it has a certain vigour. They may be psychological purposes, we may not like them, but it's survived. And And similarly, if you're unable to face up to reality for whatever reason, to real events, to cope with them, then you just won't be around in a millennium or a few millennia time. And so given all that, what can we say with confidence about present approaches, present belief systems, and any solutions or strategies we wish to propose.
0: Can I end by just asking you then about something you talk about in the book which seems very intriguing to me. You quote somebody else, um, philosopher Elitch, talking about what he called three enslaving illusions. And they seem to, to kind of encapsulate some of what you're driving at in this book. Can you e- explain what they
1: are and, and why they're important? So that's the theologian and philosopher Ivan Illich who wrote really in the 50s and 60s a great period of sort of speculation around the potential technologies about what he called enslaving illusions and, and as you said the one of them for him was that you know sort of good things will always be replaced by better things and the other was the idea and I'm paraphrasing here that um, an expert class of technologists would kind of solve problems on other people's behalf and that all problems can be solved by consumption, that there's, you can purchase, that a purchase, an act of consumption can ultimately give you purpose and solve anything. And he, he was coming in one sense from a kind of anti-capitalist or anti-materialist point of view. He was very interested in the spiritual life. But I think there's a more general point here about the poverty of what's sometimes called solutionist thinking, which is a narrative that casts society as a series of problems awaiting technological solutions. And and the problem with this is is exactly, I think, what he nailed, which is the idea that once you sort of put on your technocratic hat and then forget to take it off, and you say, you know, global warming, big problem, right? Big problem. OK, so what are the technologists going to do? Should we put some mirrors in space? Um, Should we capture the carbon? Very important. But if we sort of believe to some degree that... The good things we have now are all just going to be replaced by better things, by, by faster things, by newer things. That the technologists are going to solve the problems on our behalf, that there's a solution out there waiting to be implemented. And to some degree that all we need to do is sit tight and then invest or spend our money on the right stuff. We've denuded the life, social experience, society of all these questions around, you know, what else is life for? What should we be doing? What might we be doing? What are the alternatives and what does it mean you know why, why should we do any of this what does it mean to find purpose and value so i think he's a very powerful critic of technology as an end in itself and societies inherently kind of just reducible to problem a b and c solution d and i think the antidote to this is in part just being prepared to get off certain treadmills not tune out and drop out but just once you've got enough, once you're lucky or privileged enough to have enough of something for a given value of enough, then to just sit with the questions of what it's all about, what it's all for, what gives life value. As ever, these kind of simplifications, when you get down to it, are just very bad descriptions of human existence. They don't really, if you stop and scrutinise, they don't really stand up to scrutiny. A lot of the stuff that's said you know about humans are just this we're just meat we're just thinking meat the problems are this the problems are this they're just gross simplifications that utterly fail to describe parenthood relationships the raising of new generations why people do most of the things they do and therefore they also fail to describe how we might possibly hope to come together and solve or identify actual problems or, or find ways of thriving
0: Tom Chatfield thank you very much indeed Wise Animals is out now